some of the things I know Sheriff, must be a key topic of conversation with this group around, you know, data feminism and, you know, what is the relevance of this data? Is this, is data being gathered in an extractive way? Is it reinforcing marginalization? Is it reinforcing colonial legacies? And, and is it representative? And I think that really goes to relevance, right? How relevant does this data set feel to me as a feminist organizer or activist? Do I see myself in it? Do I see the other women who stand alongside me? And I think especially when it's a group that's working with particularly marginalized or racialized groups that can be hidden in data. So even if it's disaggregated by men and women, we don't see black women. We don't see ethnic minorities. We don't see religious minorities or different castes broken down like that. Welcome back to the DFN podcast. I'm your host, Allie. Today, we're going to be discussing the importance and power of data-driven feminist movements. Now, thankfully, as a society, there is increasing recognition that when advocates, such as feminist activists, are equipped with data and the skills to effectively use it, their efforts to influence decision makers are likely to be more credible and result in more evidence-based decision making. However, it comes as no surprise that feminist organizations frequently face constraints in resourcing and capacity needed to undertake data-driven advocacy. So this, combined with underinvestment in collecting and sharing timely, quality gender data collectively, limits opportunities for feminist movements to influence decision-makers with data. We have Amanda Austin here today to walk us through this discussion on the importance and power of data-driven feminist movements. Amanda is the Head of Policy and Advocacy at Equal Measures 2030, where she manages global, regional, and national level advocacy and policy positioning on behalf of the organization. For those of you who aren't familiar with EM 2030 or have never heard of it before, it is a collaboration of leaders from feminist networks, civil society, international development, and the private sector that works to address a number of the issues constraining feminist movements from effectively using data, among other things. And so Amanda works with their partners to connect data and evidence with advocacy and action on gender equality. Thank you so much for joining us today, Amanda. All right, Amanda, so I understand you've been doing some research on the critical role that feminist and girls and women's rights movements play in the promotion of gender equality. So our first question for you today is, in what ways are feminist movements most effective in promoting gender equality? In an enormous number of ways. And the brilliant thing about this is that there's actually quite a a strong and growing body of evidence to support the power of feminist movements in in making change, and in fact, even identifying them as the key ingredient in achieving long-term sustainable policy change on gender equality. And in one way, that feels like an obvious statement. And in another way, it, it feels incredible, you know, that effectively grassroots organizing collectively is is really the ingredient to making change. So 
you know, new research from Laurel Weldon, for example, is talking, you know, looking across 30 years, um, 40 years across countries and seeing a very clear link between feminist advocacy and laws on women's rights in the economic sphere and expanded economic rights across across all groups of women, and as well as government action on sexual harassment. And we also see an association between feminist mobilization and women elected into office. And, you know, this is also coming from groups that you expect to make these arguments like AWID, but also the World Bank, right, that showing that collective feminist action is actually really the key to claiming more resources for women. So I think that the power of feminist movements is is clear and increasingly clear and increasingly accepted. But what we really look at at Equal Measures 2030 is how do we make that even more powerful? And we believe um, that one of the ways to do that is by equipping feminist movements and advocates with stronger data and evidence and the skills to use them. Amazing. Yeah, it's great that these feminist movements are finally starting to gain that global recognition. And similarly, I think that the importance of data and evidence to understand gendered issues and a range of other issues is also starting to gain recognition as something that's increasingly important. And I know that the topic of data, especially disaggregated data, has become central to advancing gender equality and achieving sustainable development goals. So in your research and experience, could you provide some examples of where you've seen data strengthen the power of feminist movements? Yeah, absolutely. And we, um, you know, partnership is key to how Equal Measures 2030 works. Um, and we have the great privilege of having some incredible national partners who've worked with us since our founding, really, um, in 2017. And we've learned together about the kinds of things that work and don't work. And, you know, one of our partners, for example, um, Groots in Kenya, an incredibly strong partner that's been that's been using data in different ways for a long time. But one of the one of the stories that they've and, and successes they've had recently is that they they've been they've been training um, grassroots women in their network to collect data on registrants to what are called sort of group ranches. So it's kind of the mechanism through which land is governed. Um, and the benefits for landowners can be accessed in Kenya and discovered that only 9% of members were women. And using that fact um, and being able to really put a number on it, not just say, you know, where are the women or there aren't very many women, no, you know, 9%, an incredibly small number of these of these landowners and, and women actually able to access these benefits were, were women. So using that they actually went to the ranch chairs to the local leaders um, to advocate and work with local government to raise awareness around land rights that are protected in law but not actually seen in reality which is such a common issue we see for gender equality and and should be afforded to women under the community land act and actually they have been able to get huge numbers of women now to register themselves local government to open up that process um, to be able to make it more accessible to women who have caring responsibilities or other responsibilities. And and they've seen a massive increase now in the number of women now in leadership of those land branches. And, you know, they, they were only able to do that because they had the data at their fingertips. And they've said that time and again, that stories are powerful, 
a single person's experience can be powerful, but it's really with those numbers that they see see things really click, especially for local government officials. And, you know, we see the same thing in, in Indonesia with our partner there. They just managed to, with in collaboration with many others, achieve a change in the um, legal age of marriage for girls, increased up to 19 from, from 16. And that was largely due to the fact that that Kapal Parempuan, our partner there, as well as others, collected data at the local level about child marriage rates because obviously Indonesia is an enormous country and the rates of child marriage vary hugely in different parts of that country. But they were able to show that actually in some of the areas where they work, like West Sulawesi, actually the number of child marriages, the percentage and the rate is incredibly high. Over over half of girls being married under 18 in some of these areas. And it was by being able to really shine a spotlight on that and the associated effects and barriers that those girls then face being drawn out of education, having health issues, being more likely to have an, an early pregnancy or complications with that pregnancy, um, that they were able to lobby the president's office in Indonesia to say, we really need to make this a top priority. And that happened. And I think they really credit the data-driven advocacy they did with that change. Those are both great examples of the power of collecting and accumulating that collective experience. And it's an interesting topic because especially when we're talking about gendered issues such as um, sexual violence or like you mentioned, child marriage, it's an interesting topic because that individual experience, someone just telling their individual story is something that should be taken very seriously, but often it isn't or it can't be because it doesn't get the reach it needs. So by accumulating those stories and in a way that doesn't take away from that individual's experience, but really like strengthens it as a whole and shows that this is an issue that's affecting so many people on such a big level is amazing. And it makes me think of a quote from Melinda Gates and the quote goes, if advocacy is about giving a voice to the voice List. data collection and analysis is about making the invisible visible and that's something I think about a lot. So Amanda we know that data collection and analysis requires not only financial resources but a technical skill set and an understanding of data science which can be a barrier for many companies and organizations and I can imagine that feminist movements are by no means exempt from these obstacles. And I'd like to know, what are some of the biggest challenges faced by feminist organizations in using data to drive their advocacy efforts? They really range right across the piece. And I think I think some of them are core and existential for feminist movements as a whole. And that just has to do with, you know, their very existence and ability to operate. So, you know, do they do they have enough unrestricted funding to be able to do, you know, this kind of core work and advocacy, you know, advocacy can be very difficult to fundraise for, for lots of organizations, big and small, you know, can they access that funding? Is it safe to do advocacy in the different spaces in which they're trying to operate, you know, let alone bringing data into that equation, right? So I think it is, it's really important before jumping into issues around data to, and the use of that, um, to recognize those kind of fundamental challenges that lots of feminist organizations face. And without doing that, we can't, we, we can't sort of get to that next step. But then I think beyond that, when we look at an organization that does feel like they've got the sort of the interest and the 
and the space in which to operate, the civic space in which to operate safely um, and advocate on these issues. I think some of the challenges that we run into are, are core to um, some of the things I know must be a key topic of conversation with this group around, you know, data feminism and, you know, what is the relevance of this data? Is this is data being gathered in an extractive way? Is it reinforcing marginalization? Is it reinforcing colonial legacies? And, and is it representative? And I think that really goes to relevance, right? How relevant does this data set feel to me as a feminist organizer or activist? Do I see myself in it? Do I see the other women who stand alongside me? And I think especially when it's a group that's working with particularly marginalized or racialized groups that can be hidden in data. So even if it's disaggregated by men and women, we don't see black women. We don't see ethnic minorities. We don't see religious minorities or different castes broken down like that. And so I think relevance is the first big question. And, and what we've really found is that to kind of get past that, we can look at official data sets, we can look at big quant data, um, and that's a helpful entry point for a lot of our partners to talk about an issue, but they then can deep dive into stories and they can deep dive into qualitative information. And so they almost use quant data as a way to open a door, a way to open a conversation, set a scene, talk about the, the seriousness and, and sort of breadth of an issue but then use that as an opportunity to talk about their own specific expertise, their own specific experience, a particular group that's not represented there or, you know, something like that. And I think that is a way to help data feel more relevant and also still allow them to point out things that aren't being shown in that data. I think in other ways, you know, the other couple of challenges that, that feminist movements can face in using data are around access. Um, and and then around sort of capacity um, and comfort with data itself. So access, you know, it's no surprise to anyone here that it can be incredibly difficult to get access to a data set in the first place. When you do, it might be three years old. And when you do, it might be a giant spreadsheet that is difficult for anyone to, to weed through, you know, a data scientist or an activist alike to to try to wade through what does that mean what's this trying to tell me and where's the key message and you know what what am i supposed to do with this this spreadsheet and so and i don't think that's always i don't think that's always intentional but i think it's sometimes intentional um from data producers to not always provide things as easily as they could i think that's also linked to capacity of data producers you know some some national staff offices are very small and and trying to put things out there is tough so i think Accessing data, knowing where to find it, knowing, you know, knowing who to go to is another key challenge. And then I think finally, as I said, sort of skills and capacity and comfort with using data isn't necessarily a skill set we see frequently in feminist movements. And we did a we did quite a large survey globally back in 2018 of gender equality advocates around their comfort with and use of data. And you certainly see that coming through there, kind of a, a desire to use it more, a desire to engage, and, and, and certainly a recognition of the, of the importance and relevance whilst recognizing the challenges, but not necessarily knowing where to start 
right? Um, and, and knowing exactly, as I said, who to go to, but then even once it's in your hands, how do I find my message here? How do I find my key stat? And then once I find it, how do I how do I package that up into a way that's compelling? And all of those things are the reason why we have developed a, a sort of data-driven advocacy curriculum, which we which we ad- we adapt and change and 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 really tailor depending on the the kind of advocates and learners we're working with. But it really takes you right through the data value chain from what are data, why do we care, straight through to like who are the producers, what are the types of biases that might be introduced into data sets, um, right through to how do we create an infographic. Um, and so we kind of meet advocates where they are and try to help them work through those different challenges that they're going to face. So you've kind of brought up the topic of you know, relevance of data, access to data, which makes me think of data gaps and, and missing data, which we know is a big issue in the realm of of gender equality and many other issues as well. Because as as we've talked about, collecting data is is expensive and it requires lots of resources. But one way to fill these gaps is with non-official data. For example, our guests last month on the DFN Lounge from UC San Diego uh, did some amazing research on how big data, such as Twitter data and Google Trends, can help fill gaps where traditional data collection uh, may be lacking and provide unique insights into those gender issues. So in the context of data-driven feminist movements, what are some of the opportunities and challenges presented by non-official or citizen-generated data? You know, there's so many different types of data that can come under this umbrella. And I think each one of them needs sort of unpacking, if you like. And I know um, you had our our lovely colleagues from Data2x um, here earlier who are are such thought leaders in this as well. They're in our partnership of Equal Measures 2030 and such great partners to have. I, you know, I think if we think about big data, things, for example, that come through social media platforms and things like that, some of the challenges there, of course, are, you know, the representation question, right? So if we're building things off of that, these are these are going to be people who have access regularly to internet or data packages and to the the devices that allow them to that allow them to plug into those. And so, you know, I think that from a feminist and sort of inclusion perspective, I think that can be that can be a real challenge is that you can lose some of them the people that are inevitably not going to be not going to be captured by some of those big data approaches, but you know, it's important to recognize the diversity there, right? Banks or telephone telecom companies can have a much wider sample sometimes. I think though what we have greater experience in and links with our partners on is on citizen-generated data. And I think that we're starting to see some really interesting partnerships where a civil society organization, you know, like, like Roots Kenya, for example, that we work with, has, has been working with the Kenya National Bureau of Statistics around time-use surveys in order to understand better sort of care burdens, right? Um, and unpaid, various unpaid work. And I think that what you see is a- attempts at citizen-generated data on that issue from civil society, and then sharing that with the National T- Statistics Office can actually motivate that statistics office to take action on that issue by sort of showing what's possible, showing there's interest in it, and of course, you know, sparking an interest potentially from funders as well, which I know has been a key part of that change in Kenya. But 
we now see KNBS ready to do its first, you know, national time use survey in Kenya. And that's in part due to some of the partnerships with people like Data2x, but also with Great with Greets Kenya, um, who have been trying to capture an understanding of time use amongst their grassroots women for years now. And there's been a lot of sort of rich learning from that experience that they've been able to share as well um, with KNBS through that and through their consultative role on the civil society group that KNBS works with. And I think alongside that, you know, you, you can see the opportunity provided by citizen-generated data too is to capture, again, the people who are going to be lost, thinking about your invisible, <laughs> your invisible people, Ali, um, you know, the people more likely to be lost in aggregate numbers. So again, more marginalized groups tend to be lost within that where there aren't even necessarily questions to ask you know, how a trans woman is experiencing a particular issue. And so I think citizen-generated data can be really helpful in doing a deep dive on a particular group and how they're experiencing an issue and some of the solutions that they that they recommend. Even on a really small scale, so we saw our partner in India had worked with a number of civil society groups on on data-driven advocacy and some data collection approaches. And one of the groups they worked with was a trans rights group. And that group identified that during COVID, trans people within the community were struggling to access some of the emergency support because they didn't have the appropriate identification cards because they were not necessarily eligible to have those identification cards. And so they weren't able to get the support that was being offered to others. And they they went around and did a survey of different trans people within that community in order to understand the, the breadth of that problem and use that data then to advocate at very local government level to say, look, at these are the people who are being left out here. This is the way in which you need to change your provisions. And they actually saw success on that. So I think that it can be really impactful, especially when it's looking at that level. I think that the challenges introduced are, you know, often people gathering citizen-generated data are not data experts, are not necessarily trained in lots of research methodology or considerations around how bias can be introduced, but it's just through the construction of how questions are worded, for example, or in how to design an, in a representative sample, how to avoid the kind of sampling bias. And, and those things do can mean that that data is not taken seriously by people who favor official official statistical information. So I think there's there's also a need to do support to those people, groups who do want to gather data in a citizen-generated data way to help them build up those skills. And then also to then help on the other side with someone like a national stats office to really take that data seriously, because they will then have more, hopefully more faith in the way in which it was gathered and the relevance and, um, and rigor behind it. Yeah, starting from the support and training is is so important because I'm in a master's of business analytics program right now and I know that there's a lot behind the data science and you know data scientists and decision makers in general there's we have a lot of responsibility because the data that we create or that we collect is going to affect the population that it represents and the population maybe that it doesn't represent so it's very very important to understand how you collect the data, what kind of questions you're asking, how that's going to affect the decisions that are made. So you're totally right in the fact. 
in saying that the training and the support uh, is the place to start. So Amanda, you've walked us through the importance and power of data-driven feminist movements, as well as some of the obstacles and challenges that these movements face. But let's leave our audience today with some action items. What actions can stakeholders in this space take to support data-driven feminist movements? So, you know, it depends on on what's your sphere, right? What's your sphere of influence? Um, I think that, you know, I think that all of us can do more to try to increase the availability of of gender data in the first place, and whether that means you're an advocate and you're highlighting gaps um, in gender data and issues that are really relevant to feminist movements. So that could be talking about disaggregation. It could be measuring politically sensitive or challenging issues like um, time use, like care work, or even sexual and reproductive health and rights, right, which can so often be a marginalized um issues sort of put on the back burner due to politics. So, you know, I think I think all of us can have a role in that and whether you're a researcher that can help look into um, how best to kind of capture these different issues, try to shine a spotlight on the way that different marginalized groups are experiencing them, or you're an advocate and you can talk to, you know, the National Statistics Office, or you can work with advocate groups uh, like ours to advocate for gender, more gender data and better gender data. I think that's that's a really powerful and important step. I think that those who are working with directly with feminist and girls and women's rights organizations, I think can talk more about data with those organizations. Um, I think there is actually a lot of interest from what we've found, but just again, kind of not sure where to start and like how do we how do we make sure this aligns with our values? How can we use data and remain really true to our kind of feminist principles? And I think there are a lot of really good ideas in the Data Feminism book about that. There are a lot of really good ideas from the speakers you've had in this group, Ali, you know, and I think I think lots of people can have those links and and whether that's in your local area or, or internationally, I think that's that's definitely a part of it. And then, you know, I mean, do we have any donors in the room? Maybe. <laughs> or people who are friends of donors and, you know, um connected, well connected to philanthropy, because I think we're actually seeing you know, not least from some big players like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, significant investments in trying to empower feminist movements better, um, ensure that they have capacity, ensure they have funding, and ensure that they have, you know, support to be able to use data. And actually, that is something that other philanthropy partners and donors are increasingly interested in. And I think being able to sort of demonstrate how that's already happening in really powerfully in some feminist movements, and that could be replicated in lots of different ways to to kind of have a, a replicator and, and ripple effect. I think could also be be really powerful. I think those are probably the two that I'd really jump on, you know. But if there's anybody here who wants to talk in depth about all the things that we could be doing together, I I am here for it and ready to have that chat. I'm impressed with the concrete steps and actions that you do have because this is such a at times daunting and, and overwhelming issue because there are so many complexities surrounding data and this sort of advocacy. So it's great that you and your team and your partners have really thought about the concrete actions that can be taken to advance these issues. Thank you so much, Amanda. I'm definitely uh, feeling inspired after this conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your experiences, your research and your thoughts. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ali. Thanks all. 
To stay up to date on Data Feminism Network events, check out our website at www.datafeminismnetwork.org. If you're a fan of the show, follow us on Instagram at Data Feminism Network and on Twitter at Data Fem Network. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, where we post event updates and share job opportunities related to data equity and inclusion. Be sure to tune in to next week's episode on redefining how poverty is measured with Joanna Lindner-Pradella from the Equality Insights team. See you then.